that when we come together and lift each other up, there's nothing this state can't achieve. Tonight we showed the country that Minnesota should not be underestimated. This campaign has always been about what we're fighting for in this country. Well, change has come and it's because of all of you. We are done waiting. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Let's get to work. Those are just some of the fresh faces in new roles you'll see on the Minnesota political front in the coming year. Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. That'll be a key theme in 2019, new leaders, new ideas on both the state and national levels. DFL Governor-elect Tim Walls will need to work with a divided legislature for at least his first two years in office. The DFL will control the House for the first time in four years, while the Republicans will hold a one-seat majority in the Senate. Governor Luck Walls told us shortly after his victory he doesn't see it as a roadblock. I think there's opportunities inside of that. I think there's opportunities to forge that one Minnesota we're talking about, making sure that the, the voters who sent uh, Senator Gazelka and his people to the Capitol are respected and heard in the same way that we are respected and heard by the voters that came out Tuesday night. Minnesota will be the only state in the entire country with a divided legislature in 2019. Minnesota will have five new members in its congressional delegation as well. We traveled to Washington, D.C. in November with our state's freshman class for their new member orientation. All three of the new Democrats from Minnesota are making history in their own way. The newly elected members of the U.S. House make up a diverse group of men and women lawyers, business people, and military veterans, and the first ever refugee who came to America to escape war-torn Somalia. Minnesota's Ilhan Omar is about to begin work in Congress just a few miles from her first home in America. The community over Arlington, Virginia is where I first arrived uh, here in, in the United States, and I think it's um, an, an example of, of hope uh, to, to now have um, me, 20 years later, coming here as a representative uh, for, for our great state. It's the beauty of Congress. It is such a representation of the mosaic of the country, extraordinary life stories and experiences and perspectives. Democrat Dean Phillips is a fellow Democrat, but brings his own perspective as a wealthy businessman willing to work in bipartisan fashion with new colleagues like Minnesota's Jim Hagedorn and Pete Stauber. The collegiality amongst the Democrats and Republicans newly elected uh, is really inspiring and, I, and I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic. A lot to learn, a lot to listen to and a lot to navigate. The third new Democrat from Minnesota is Angie Craig representing the 2nd District. She will become the first openly gay member of Congress from the state of Minnesota. As you heard, there will also be two new Republican members of Congress from Minnesota, Jim Hagedorn and Pete Stauber. Both have unique connections to former President Ronald Reagan. Republican Pete Stauber arrived in Washington, D.C. without much fanfare, unlike his other notable visit to Washington 30 years ago as one of the captains of the 1988 NCAA national champion Lake Superior State hockey team. We were the first Division I hockey team to visit the White House, and in May of 88, it was uh, President Ronald Reagan. At the time, Stauber aspired to serve the public as a police officer, not a politician. But Reagan had a big impact on him. I remember meeting him, Tom. He was just a, just a, a figure of a man. His suit, everything was 
perfect about him and he was just a, a humble person and congratulated us on the victory and I'll never forget that. You've spent a lot of time out here. Republican Jim Hagedorn is no stranger to Washington either or to President Reagan. Hagedorn's dad, Tom Hagedorn, served in Congress from the mid-70s until the early 80s, making them the first father-son congressional combo in Minnesota since Ole and Paul Qualley in the 1920s and 30s. Hagedorn's dad introduced him to Reagan in the White House. I'm a conservative. I have a little button that says I was for Reagan my whole life, you know. A very nice guy, uh, principled person. He, 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 he stood for what he believed. Some unique connections. When Jim Hagedorn is sworn in next month, he will have his dad, the former congressman, standing by his side on the House floor. Many people began doubting political polls after the 2016 elections when President Trump beat Hillary Clinton. You may recall many pollsters indicated Clinton would be the winner. But here in Minnesota in 2018, our KSTP Survey USA polls were a good gauge of what would eventually happen. We had to wait until election night to find out who won, but our KSTP Survey USA polls gave us a pretty good indication of where several key races were headed. In the Attorney General's race, our final poll had Democrat Keith Ellison up four points, 44 to 40 percent. The actual results had Ellison winning by four, 49 to 45, with the two candidates splitting the undecideds. A similar situation in the governor's race. Our final poll had Walls up 8, 49 to 41. The actual result was Walls by 12, 54 to 42. The margin was slightly larger once the undecideds made up their minds, but it had a very accurate read on a race that was not extremely close. In the third district race, our poll had Dean Phillips up five points over Eric Paulson. He actually expanded his margin to 12 points, with Paulson staying at 44% and Phillips soaring to 56%. What you could see is that late momentum seemed to really help Phillips and increase his margin of victory. Our first district poll showed it was the closest race in the state, with Dan Fian up two. Jim Hagedorn ended up winning by less than a half percentage point. Survey USA said this race was extremely close. It is the closest race in the state. So I think they had that right. And you might recall, recall our polling indicated our two U.S. Senate races would not be close, and they weren't. Amy Klobuchar and Tina Smith won by wide margins similar to our poll results. The same was true of our other polls. By the way, the 538 blog gave SurveyUSA an A rating for 2018, making it one of the top polling firms in the country, while also doing more polls than anyone else. And as you two ladies know, the average, based on 700-plus polls, and you still get an A rating, that's a pretty good mark. And that makes Member Ray Scott Young here for some political analysis. Thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, Annette, the polling in the state of Minnesota, at least KSTP Survey USA polling, was pretty close to what ended up happening. Pretty close, and, and it's impossible to predict how undecided voters who are still undecided that close to the election are going to break. But in this case, they broke against Republicans almost universally and almost all, all the way across the state. And Emperor, as we all know, polls don't actually predict, but they do give you an idea of where things stand. And then after the election, you can see where the undecided voters went. And in this case, it was pretty clear. It was very stark in that third district race. 
all the undecideds, it seems, went to Dean Phillips. You can learn a lot from the polls, particularly after the fact. And clearly, the polling has improved since 2016. So that's good for everyone, I think. Yeah, and I'm not sure if the polling improved or if the... And the climate was maybe more predictable because very few people were actually, including Donald Trump himself, were predicting a Trump victory, and he ended up winning it. So it's interesting to see, you know, the dynamics, how they change from election cycle to election cycle. Well, and the other thing that I do think polling has had a difficult time, pollsters have had a difficult time, is, is trying to figure out early voting. And things do change. Um, we saw quite a bit of late-minute advertising for Keith Ellison that probably launched him into victory, whereas if you looked at that a month out, he was clearly on the path to defeat. And, Amber, let's take a look at the amount of money that was spent because it really was huh. astounding in 2018. You can see that $46 million was spent. That's outside spending. The candidates themselves, this is just the congressional races, the candidates themselves spent nearly another $30 million. What do you expect these numbers to look like in 2020? Oh, unfortunately, I don't think that they're going to look any different. If anything, there'll be more. But I find these numbers depressing. Can I be honest about that? And I think the candidates actually were harmed by them in some cases. Sometimes the outside messaging hurt the candidate, and they have no control over that. When can we get back to the day when the candidate actually controls his or her own messaging? That's not happening now, and I don't think that's doing a service to the voters. Do you agree? Well, it is, it's problematic when you have that much outside spending. On the other hand, I look at those numbers and say, that's the First Amendment at work. And I think it's very, very difficult to control free speech. And Absolutely. I don't know that we want to. Yeah. That, well, that, I think we need to look at Citizens United to <laughs> see if we can do that, actually. <laughs> well, but I, yeah, again, First Amendment, it's, it's hard to tinker with that. And it, it's, both sides are spending a lot of money, so that's the one thing. It is a fairly level playing field. Uh, real quickly, let's talk about the legislature. Uh, 2019, how divisive do you expect this? to be? I think this could be one of our most productive sessions going forward. Why? Because you have now uh, fresh new faces. You have moderation. You have people who want to work together. Do you know that 40 of the 75 uh, members of the Democratic caucus in the House are suburban. They come from purple districts. They need to work together. One half of the senators are from suburban areas in the D D DFL caucus. So I really believe you're going to see moderation. You're going to look for ways to compromise. And I think it's going to be productive. Final 30 seconds, what every one of them has to look at in the House and the Senate, they're all up for election in 2020. Exactly. 201 of them are going to have to face voters. The governor doesn't. I think the governor would be very wise to send a more moderate agenda that there can be compromise on and there can be agreement on and move Minnesota forward. Yeah, and he'll bring in the rural piece as well, which is really important. Yeah, if, I either, hope so. if either side goes too far to the right or left, that could be problematic. Uh, I in hope the next so. Election. Annette and Ember, thank you for being here and happy new year to both of you. Yeah. Up next, we'll look back at some of the most memorable stories we've covered in 2018. He's gone from behind home plate to behind the bar. Meet the former Major League Baseball umpire now tending bar and sharing stories in his hometown. But up next, the video of a tragic moment in Minnesota hockey history, how the death of Bill Masterton shaped how the game is played today on all levels. 2018 marked the 50th anniversary of a tragic day in Minnesota sports history. You still look at it as being something that's almost like a dream. It's a nightmare. 50 years after the death of Minnesota North Star Bill Masterton, we're able to pay tribute to him with film we discovered in our five Eyewitness News archives earlier this year. It's the only known film that exists from a game at Met Center 
when Masterton suffered fatal injuries in 1968. Bill Masterton was Canadian, but his story is an American tragedy. Just a superb gentleman, great family man, very good hockey player. Born in Manitoba, his heart ended up in Minnesota. Nobody expects a 29-year-old athlete, you know, to be just all of a sudden gone. After he thought his dream of playing in the NHL was over, he took a job with Honeywell and settled in the Twin Cities with his wife and two young children. Perseverance and sportsmanship and uh, dedication to the game, that was Bill. Those are among the reasons Bill Masterton was lured away from Honeywell at age 29 to become the first player ever signed by the Minnesota North Stars. He was a classy, talented hockey player. But three months later, Masterton would be at the center of the darkest day in NHL history. He hit him so hard, uh, some, of them even, some of the players even thought he was out before he hit the ice. Masterton was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens out of college, but with just six NHL teams, he couldn't crack a lineup until the league expanded and the North Stars called. And my mother always told me he just couldn't turn it down. You know, she, he said, Carol, it's, it's really my last shot at playing pro hockey, and I may only have a couple years, but I, I just have to do it. Masterton knew it was a gamble. The gamble started to pay off, though, when he scored the first goal in North Stars history in the team's first game. But then, the fateful day, January 13th, 1968. He passed the puck, and right as he let go of the puck, he got hit. Good clean hit by two players at the same time. And then he went down and hit his head. Scott Masterton was three years old when his dad died from injuries suffered in this game. Oh, isn't that something? He'd never seen any film of his dad, number 19, playing for the North Stars. Until now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, what goes through your mind when you see something like 50 years later? Well, it, uh, it fleshes some things out a little bit, you know, makes them feel a little bit more real, you know. For the first time in 50 years, we've uncovered in our KSTP archives a portion of the final game of Masterton's life. Yeah, that's Billy right behind the net. That's amazing. Former North Star Lou Nanny was a teammate of Masterton's on the U.S. national team. It's probably, you know, within a shift or two of when he got the fatal hit. There is no recording of the fatal hit in the Oakland Seals game at Met Center in Bloomington, but now we can see some of Bill Masterton's final moments before being fatally injured. The fact that this exists is just remarkable. The fact that you found it. <laughs> we were... Uh, season ticket holders and uh, I don't think we missed a game. John Rendell was a close friend and former U.S. national teammate of Masterton's. He had just entered Met Center with his wife late in the first period. We noticed on the ice there was activity and we didn't realize it was Bill but it was Bill being treated on the ice. Rendell immediately went to talk to Masterton's wife. She didn't think that it was life-threatening at that point and uh, but it was serious. You can't see anything else that comes even close to it. I mean, that was uh, so devastating. It wasn't too long after talking to the doctors that it was life-threatening. Rendell was at the hospital when Bill Masterton died 30 hours after his injuries. 
Like nearly all NHL players, Masterton didn't wear a helmet. At Met Center a week later, there were still few players wearing helmets, but it quickly spurred debate. Well, Coach, of course, the whole league and, in fact, the whole sports world has been saddened by Bill Masterton's death. What's been the reaction of your players to possibly wearing headgear? I think that uh, some of our players now are considering wearing it. It would be another 11 years before the NHL mandated helmets. Scott Masterton says his dad's death paved the way. I think that was kind of probably a hallmark moment in the NHL, maybe in sports in general. However, it didn't keep Bill Masterton's son from playing hockey. My mother never blinked when I said I wanted to play hockey. She was very much in the idea, this is a freak accident, and this is, you know, physical things are part of any sport. Truly a remarkable story. Every year, the NHL gives the Bill Masterton Memorial Trophy to the player who best exemplifies the qualities of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to the game of hockey. Masterton jerseys still hang in the Dallas Stars Arena and at Bloomington Ice Garden here in Minnesota. Up next, we'll have some fun. We take you behind the bar with a former Major League umpire now pouring drinks and sharing stories in his hometown. A former Major League Baseball umpire from St. Paul has come full circle in his life. Tim Cheetah worked his way through college and umpiring school by tending bar and later worked in All-Star and World Series games. After a legendary 27-year career in the Major Leagues, he's back tending bar in his hometown. We caught up with Cheetah behind the bar back in July. For 27 years, he called balls and strikes as a major league umpire. What's going on, man? Not much. Same old stuff. Now Tim Cheetah spends many days BSing with the regulars at Mancini's Char House in St. Paul. She sings karaoke. Yeah, she does. Yeah. That's where I saw her. Cheetah retired after the 2012 season, but several months ago came out of retirement as a part-time bartender at Mancini's. Well, I bartended all through college and all through my minor league career. I would come home and bartend all places around St. Paul. The Creighton High School graduate and former University of St. Thomas student left behind the bright lights of Major League Baseball stadiums for the low lights of a historic St. Paul watering hole. He doesn't miss the daily grind of Major League umpiring. I miss the guys. I miss the umpires, I miss the camaraderie and the locker room banter and all that sort of thing. And, and I miss the action on the field to a certain degree, but um, overall I don't. I, I, uh, I don't miss the traveling one bit. Cheetah's long career includes many memorable highlights, like working as home plate umpire for Nolan Ryan's seventh and final no-hitter. What most people don't know about Nolan Ryan was, you know, everybody raved about his fastball, but his curveball was devastating, and it was 95 miles an hour. He also worked two All-Star games, three World Series, and several other postseason games. When I got hired in 86, uh, I was the youngest umpire on the staff. I was 25 years old when I got hired. He was 57 years old when he was hired at Mancini's. He's a great bartender. Obviously, oh, <laughs> he gets a lot of friendly jabs from the longtime regulars, but they also love his baseball stories. What you didn't know about baseball, he tells you. So it's and there's always a questions coming up, and he'll always answer it. 
They're inspecting Phil Necro. One game he gets asked about a lot is the infamous Joe Necro Emery board game. Now there's the sandpaper is on the left and the Emery board is on the right. In 1987, Twins 42-year-old pitcher Joe Necro was tossed out of a game for illegally scuffing baseballs. Up until this point, we had already collected a half a dozen balls that were defaced. A 27-year-old, Tim Cheetah, was the home plate umpire who challenged Necro. We really didn't want to eject him. We didn't want to embarrass him. We didn't want to do anything like that. So I was hoping to get by with just an inspection and then say, all right, clean it up from here on out. Hey, checking him all over. But the infamous video clearly shows illegal objects falling from Necro's pockets when he tried to hide the evidence. The sandpaper flew straight down and the emery board was tossed off to the right. That might be the most famous moment of Cheetah's career for Twins fans, but Red Sox fans remember the so-called phantom tag from the 1999 American League Championship Series. Jimmy Williams comes sprinting out to talk to the second base umpire, Tim Toshida. And I have to say, from up here, it looked like Knobloch missed Offerman. Now, I would have given anything to be able to change that call. It was one of those plays where every umpire on the field had the same angle that I had. And it, it looked like he tagged him from where we were looking. But there was no replay rule at the time, and the call stood. Uh, the Red Sox fans were pretty upset with me on that one. That's where I saw you. Cheetah faces far less controversy in his new line of work. After throwing out dozens of players and managers over his career, just one ejection at Mancini's. One guy so far, just one. He was had been overserved before he got here. For Tim Cheetah, going from play ball to what do you have is a great retirement plan. Gets me out of the house. I still leave me enough time to play golf during the week. There you go. Got a guy with a twins hat, Tom. I get down here, chit chat with the boys, Michael, and have some fun. And, and uh, it's been a great gig. I, I love every minute of it. Easily one of my favorite stories of 2018. We'll be back in 90 seconds. As 2019 begins, Minnesota will see many new faces on the political front, as we've shown you. It all begins January 7th when Tim Walls is sworn in as the state's 41st governor. The next day, the new legislative session kicks off with 39 new members of the House taking office. And out in Washington, D.C., new members of Congress will be sworn in in early January. As they say in television, stay tuned. It's going to be an interesting two years leading up to the next big elections in 2020. We'd like to see what you have to say about At Issue. Send us your feedback and let us know what issues you'd like to see on the show. Just write to At Issue at KSTP.com. You can also listen to episodes of At Issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted on the At Issue page at KSTP.com. That's all the time we have for now. We hope to see you again next week and next year. Have a great day, everyone.